If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Tico Brahe. In the last episode, we talked about his golden nose and the sword fight over mathematics that caused him to lose it. We talked about Rix, the pet moose who got drunk and fell down the stairs. And then we mixed in a little astronomy about how Tico saw the planets huddled around the sun like it was a campfire. In this episode, you'll hear more about how Tico sees the universe and how his uncle died saving the king, which forever changed Tico's life. And this was... Uh, one of the great events astronomically in my life was in 1572, there was a new star in the sky. It was, I have mentioned it was my habit of contemplating the stars as I, I walked outdoors at night. And there was a star of just unsurpassed in its brilliancy, much brighter, looked like a planet. And I, w- I want to pause right here for just a second. So yeah. to be clear on this, I'm glad that you're bringing this up, and I don't, I don't want to mix this up with the previous thought. You're just mm-hmm. walking along in 1572, and you've been looking at the stars and cataloging the stars, and you're interested in all of this, and you just look up and you say, there's a brand new star up there. And Absolutely. It, and you've never seen it before. That's the reaction that you had? Yes, it was, it was in the constellation of Cassiopeia. I'm sure I, where you were calling from, there's a familiar constellation in the sky. It looks like a, the letter M on its side. And so this, had, this constellation had been studied very well. We knew of all the locations of the stars in relation to that and other constellations. And on just one evening, there was a very bright new star. In fact, when I compiled my analysis of this, the title of the book was Nova Stella in Latin, the new star. And at the time, we spoke of Copernicus, who had, uh, not of Copernicus, of Aristotle, who had basically figured it all out. And he said the things in the heavens that were strange, like comets, perhaps, or the shooting, shooting stars, they, they were probably things that were happening in the atmosphere. Like there was a theory that comets were belched out of volcanoes or some such thing. So it was my analysis that proved that this new thing in the sky was not local to us here on Earth, but it was very far away in the realm of the stars. And the notion that the stars are eternal and unchanging and they should never doubt them or the theories that encompass them, there was a bit of a chip in that marble by seeing the, the, the famous uh, the new star in 1572. And that's what led me to realize that there is, a, and I, I used this uh, before, that authority must always yield the truth. And the truth was before my nose uh, that there was a new star in the sky. And I studied it as well as I could, and it eventually diminished over several weeks in brightness and then could not be seen anymore. So this was a whole new adventure as to like, well, what curious beast you can imagine if someone uh, who had never been to a, a zoological collection of animals was told what an elephant would look like without ever seeing one. The first time they saw one, they would think, well, for what wonders lie in the, in, in the forests of the world? This is how I felt when I viewed the, the, this new star. Did, so did you continue looking for it for the rest of your life, and did it ever reappear? It never reappeared. It was the, 
it became dimmer and dimmer. So perhaps it is still there, but of the magnitude that is too, too low for the resolution from our eyes. The magnitudes of stars in the heavens was established in the ancient Greek times by Hipparchus, I think, that it was the number as it gets higher, the stars become less and less visible. And on a scale we can see from negative numbers for very bright things, such as the planet Venus, all the way up to about a sixth magnitude. And perhaps this new star just diminished in its, in its power to, to shine to some magnitude that is unseeable, perhaps with your, the devices that you spoke about that can see millions of miles into space, will be able to ascertain if whether or not there is still the star in Cassiopeia. Gosh, this had to feel like, like finding a lifelong friend and then losing him and looking for him for the rest of your life. <laughs> but one, one only, the universe is a vast place, and you can look in many directions. It, was, it only took about five years before I made the observation of a, a new comet that was very spectacular. And remember, in, in my day, the appearance of a comet was seen as a bad omen. Some the terrible thing is going to happen, some plagues or something, uh, or a king would die and the like. But my studies, now that I had prepared myself to be on, on, on the lookout for, the, for these events, I studied the comets. And even though the comet on 1577 was not as far away as the stars, I did realize that it was beyond the planets, certainly the atmosphere of the Earth. And it, is, it was crashing in through all of the orbits of the heavens. And this was perhaps not as spectacular as a star that was new in the sky, but it did provide some proof. Uh, one has to remember, perhaps you are aware, that since the time of the ancients, you asked how people thought that the heavens moved, yes? And it was thought that there were in the universe crystalline spheres, literally, suspended in space, like a glass orb, yes? And mm -hmm. imagine if you had a, a glass flask, and you would put a little ball inside, like a glass marble, and then you would swirl it around as you were swirling around wine in a goblet. The ball would roll around on the inside of the sphere. And this was sort of thought how the planets stayed in their locations. And when I studied the comets of 1577 and realized that its trajectory was coming through these glass spheres, the notion of crystalline spheres that had existed since the time of the ancient Greeks were literally shattered by this comet. So even though it perhaps was not as romantic as seeing a new star in the sky, it had great utility in, for the future of astronomy because another theory of the past was set upon the rubbish heap that, of history that the notion that crystal spheres somewhat holding up the heavens well, was proven incorrectly. Now, at the same time, I had yet to discover some other reason what could be holding them up. But as any good man of science exists, it is the excitement in our field is not in the answers we have achieved necessarily, but it is in what questions still lie ahead of us, because that, that is what propels us forward. You know, it's interesting to imagine all these people walking around the planet in your time, and they're making bread, and they're shoveling dirt, and they're putting horseshoes on horses, and are totally oblivious to everything that is happening above their head. And in, in that place where you spend such a huge portion of your life when there aren't clouds and there's drinking to be done. Which, which brings me to, I, I really would like to hear about 
this private island that you ended up on, and I'd like to hear, I think the moose lived on, or the elk lived on that island as well. I'd like to hear about that because the what you set up on that sounds wonderful. Before we get into that, though, you've said this a couple times, and I'd never heard this word until I started reading about you, and it is this concept of parallax. And this is a very interesting contribution that I think that you've made. Could you explain this concept of parallax? Well, the notion of parallax is that it is not a new concept with me, but my utilization of it for things on the heavens was perhaps more advanced. But the best way to explain this, because it is geometry is not something that is best always described through language. It's better through, through diagrams and the like. But wherever you are, if you have a window and you hold your thumb up in the air and you close one of your eyes, and you align your thumb with some distant object like a tree or a building or something or some, along those lines. And then when you change your eyes from one to the other, do you see how your thumb appears to move? Yeah, I do. So the notion of parallax is that if you know the distance from one eye to the other, and you know the distance from your eye to your thumb, you also can determine from the angle of difference, how far away a tree is in the distance. So a wonderful gift that Euclid has given us to make these measurements. And simply the analysis of perspective, and when you are doing it as an astronomer, you are not necessarily doing it just from one eye to the other. You are using the whole Earth as the shift of view. So imagine if you are observing a star one month and then another month, you would think that there was a significant change in the position. But for the stars, there is very little, not little, none that I, I can detect of parallax at all. The planets do show this because they are much nearer. Our comets can show this because they are much nearer. But the stars seem to be devoid of parallax. So in other words, the stars must be very distant. And this is how I determined that the new star was actually in the realm, the celestial realm, and not in the planetary realm. And that was the use of this use of a mathematical tool. Even though we think that the, the ancient Greeks lived thousands of years before us, and we might have the conceit to thinking that since we are more modern people, that we are smarter than they are. But that is not the case. <laughs> are smart people in every generation of time. It is just a matter if you are lucky enough to have the tools and the right circumstances to make a great advancement. So I had used a tool that had been established for many centuries to essentially move the argument forward as to, to what these curious astronomical events were, or at least where they were occurring in our universe. So would it be too much of an oversimplification to say that the further something is away, the less it moves, and the closer it is, the more it moves. That is correct, yep. And so as you're deciding what's closest, is the comet closer than the moon, closer than the sun or Saturn, closer than a star, you're looking at them all at the same time and then making a determination of which one is moving the least and the most to determine distances. Yes, and the movement is not necessarily the movement of the body itself. It is your change in your perspective of where you're looking. So remember when you close one eye and then the other eye, your viewpoint had changed. So for the Earth, 
we are uh, yeah, from Copernicus's time, let's uh, assume that uh, Copernicus is right and the Earth is moving. You can use the entire Earth as a, a change in perspective. You could use different countries. You could use different locations within the same country. And all of these parallax shifts could help you ascertain how far away these objects were. I was not the first Copernicus actually used this accurately when he was determining how far away the planets were from each other with parallax. So it is a very common tool in astronomy. I was just lucky to have to apply it to something, a new and wondrous phenomena. And I, it was my luck to be looking up at the right time. I'm sure there were other people in the world who saw something strange in the sky that night. But I, perhaps I was the first one to write it down and get credit for it. <laughs> So you, the measurement is a triangle. It's one spot to one spot to the spot that you're looking at. Basically, yeah. You probably learned in, in geometry class the, uh, the theory of similar triangles. And this is a simply basis, a simple basis of trigonometry and the measuring angles and the like. So it is, it is a very common tool. People who use this to measure distances on the Earth, like cartographers and the like, can use this as well. Or people who use, use it to triangulate the distances for weapons, for artillery, and those sorts of things. But I use, I use the same tools to analyze what is happening in the skies. Okay. Let me clear up a couple points about the beginning of all this. You were born into nobility and had some money right away, and obviously you didn't squander these gifts, and I applaud you for that because, as you said, so many people do. But as I was reading a little bit about you, there were some confusing things about the beginning of your life. I read once that you are the oldest of 12 and that you, by when you were two years old, you went to live with an uncle. I think his name was Jorgen. Yeah, uncle Jorgen, yeah. Jorgen. And, but then I read something else that said he kidnapped you and that all the other kids lived with your original parents and then you lived with him. So what actually happened? Why did Jorgen yeah. take you out of the house? Wait, there's always some mystery in this, in, in the family gatherings as to the reason why this played itself out. But my, my uncle Jorgen and his wife were without child. They could not have children of their own. So whether or not it was a notion of like, well, my mother and father had so many children that they would share them with a family member who did not have the luxury of raising a child. The issue, whether or not, I know my families have the secrets, I guess, but it was the notion I still had strong relations with all of the members of the bride family. So it wasn't as though I was taken away never to see people of my past again. So I think the word kidnapping is a, a bit of a, a extreme at the time, but the, the ends justify the means perhaps in that I was raised as though I, I was Jürgen's son. I was considered an heir to, to, his, to his family estate and the like. So I was raised very well by a very loving uncle who was equivalent to a father to me. So in the long run, as long as the love and care are present, that is the important thing. Is that a Danish thing by chance? You know, if one person has lots of kids and somebody has, doesn't have lots of kids, you're like, hey, you know, which one of these do you want? I, I cannot speak to that with any sense of uh, accuracy from a sociological perspective, but I can say that Danes are known for, for being generous, so perhaps we could just <laughs> chalk it up to this. Okay. You know, all the experiences I've had with Danes have been exactly that, generous and very decent people. They're hard-working people. I am glad to hear this. There are several stories in your life that seem to include alcohol, and I know you've made that clear why that is. <laughs> Jorgen, you would, Uncle Jorgen, you said, was a man at arms, and, but then he 
died after saving one of the kings. I heard a story of that. Can you yeah. tell me that story? Yes, there, there was King Frederick II. Uh, my uncle was in his service, and there had been a military battle in the part of Sweden that was still not controlled by Denmark. And they were, uh, the war was not going particularly well, but maybe that was the reason why there was a night of drinking. And um, Frederick had too much to drink and fell in the canal in Copenhagen. And it was my Uncle Jorgen who dove into the canal and it was in the, the cold winter and rescued the king. And eventually, my, I know they were friends to, to begin with, but this made the king feel as though he owed something to the bride family because of this act of generosity. Unfortunately, my uncle became very sick from illness of the lungs, pneumonia, and died from this. But King Frederick said that henceforth you will always be have a favor of the Danish crown because of the bravery of your uncle. So I have to say that I was the recipient of royal favor for most of, of my life as a professional astronomer until this would change eventually with the heir to Frederick II. His son, Christian IV, was a child when the father died. and He was, in a, as they say in England, a regency. There was a group of people who ran the Danish government until the boy was old enough to, to take the crown. And the son, Christian IV, was perhaps not as fond of me and, and his father's friendships as uh, could have been. And that is where things for me went a bit astray. And my uh, no horoscope predicted those events. <laughs> <laughs> so when apparently Frederick II, he forgot to tell Christian IV, that you were going to have favor from the Danish crown, unfortunately. Before we get into discussing what happened there, though, because I know that was a big change in your life, I want to go back. When Uncle Jorgen saved Frederick II, soon after he died of pneumonia, you said, and mm. you were his heir, so is that when you received the bulk of your initial fortune? Well, it was, uh, as you know, heredity in Denmark is, it runs many generations. The longer your family goes back, the more, I guess, uh, generation after generation is used to living to a certain level of standard. But it is possible to, to uh, fall out of favor and to lose one's fortune. And one of the ways that happens, even though I was a wealthy man, is that if you have if you have no children yourselves, your fortune could essentially die with you. Yes, I was lucky enough to have children of my own, but and this is an interesting aspect of the society of Denmark. I fell in love with a young, beautiful woman named Christian Jorgen's daughter, uh, who was a commoner. She has now was not of noble birth, but I was perhaps a man of a high romance, and she said the heart dictates what the heart wants. And I, I fell in love with her, and there was much consternation from parts of the noble families that how dare could this scion of the Bai family sully himself by, by <laughs> working with a common woman. That common woman would become my wife. Through, uh, uh, she could never be a noble by birth, but in Danish, and since the time of the Vikings, this law was established that if a woman takes care of a man for three years, and keeps his house through three winters, they are a man and wife, and this can be, this has to be respected by all people. So I think in English laws, this is called a common law spouse. So Kirsten and I were spouses, but technically my children were born of someone who was not of noble birth. 
So I had to go to great extents, relying on the relationships of, of Jorgen, my other noble family. There was also my mother's side of the family with the family Bili, B-I-L-E. And I had to use, essentially, pull every kind of strings to make sure that my children would have would be my heirs in perpetuity and inherit my work and my properties and the like. And this was something that caused me much consternation because the people who were siding with Christian IV were saying, like, well, we're wasting money on this astronomer. We should just cut him off. And his kids are not royal birth anyway. But I had spent many years assuring them that would, in, in, in fact, be the case. And I still had enough sympathetic members of the royal court that eventually it was established that my children were my official heirs and it would carry on the Brahe birthright. So Christian IV was using this as some sort of ammunition to stop sending money to your work because you had these children that weren't of noble birth. Well, it is absolutely, I think it wasn't even so much that Christian had, uh, Christian himself may have children on the side, but it was the the notion that I think Christian IV was very fond of, of horses and swords and battles and the like, and not as fond of astronomers and philosophers. So uh, the salary that I was gifted by by his father, Christian thought that it could be more better used for another war with Sweden, perhaps. A man of war who rides his horse into battle is used to reining his horse in, so perhaps Christian IV was trying to rein in me as he would his, or his horse. And the, we have a saying in, in, in Danish that even though I had a, a, a bargain with his father, Frederick II, eggs and promises are easily broken. And <laughs> Christian IV took it upon himself to, to break the promise, and he was never... F- I was never fully disenfranchised, but there was always, we talked about him pulling the reins of his horse. He was also pulling the reins of his purse, which was depriving me of the money I needed to maintain my work on Wien. You know, it's interesting that Christian is 19 years old, and being rash and changing the way things are done and maybe even making decisions that he might regret later And it was when you were that same age, when you were 20, where you started swinging your sword around like you wanted to go to war with Sweden, which caused the situation with your nose. Maybe the best advice here is that 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds shouldn't be able to make really big decisions too early. And there we all understand this. Like when when it rains and my knees hurt because I'm becoming an older man and I curse my age, the wisdom that comes with, with many years is something that is irreplaceable because many people say that they would like to go back to their youth and that is probably for the for thinking of the vim and vigor that they had in those days but it was certainly nece- wasn't necessarily for the intellect that you had yeah. when you were 20 years old <laughs> yeah now that you are not 20 anymore and how old are you right now by the way i was born in 1546 so 52 Yeah. So how are your eyes at 52? Obviously, I mean, your eyes are the only thing that's more important than your brain right now, right? Well, I'm happy to report that whatever conveyances that make for a long, healthy life, I I have been blessed in that regard. And my, my vision is still rather crystal clear. I have to in comparison to my associate Kepler, who has suffered a rather sickly upbringing, not by his own his own actions, but had very poor eyesight. So he was very much determined not to 
or he could not make observations himself. He had to rely on, on, on books and charts that were written by others, which is part of the reason why he was so eager to come work with me, because his eyesight was not as good as mine. So we say to knock upon a tree, knock on wood, that, that my eyes are as sharp as my dagger was when I was 20, or hmm. Pawsberg's dagger. <laughs> okay. So, all right, so let's talk about the island. And the name of that island, is it Ven? Yeah, it is, uh, yeah, H-V-E-M. In Danish, we say Ven, but it is in Latin, Venus, but it is a small island off the coast of, in Denmark. Perhaps you know there's a, a city on the very tip of Denmark, closest to Sweden, that is called Elsinore. There's a famous castle there. And from the ramparts of Castle Elsinore, if you were to look towards for the east a little bit, you would see this island that had been sitting there was a, at a, in Viking times. It was a station for them and their ships for their battles. And this, it is windswept, very flat, and it was a perfect place for observing stars because there was no mountains and forests and the like. And it was um, for the second, realizing the successes I had doing the observations, because remember the, the things that I had seen in Nova Stella in 1572, this was before I was on the Veen. So it was essentially a reward for bringing a claim that I was gifted this, this fiefdom, upon which I would establish basically a cross between a manor house, befitting of my station in life, and a school for students where we could do observations. It was, I determined to make it as beautiful as I saw that the heavens would be. And I had traveled early in my life to Venice, and I had seen much beautiful architecture. So we built the building so that it was beautiful in itself. And you would think that a building that has a ceiling, a roof over your head, but some of the roofs on my, my building could be rolled away so that you would have a view of the sky. So it was an observatory and my home, which I was, was where I lived for two decades. I think I know the name of this home, and some people have referred to this as a mansion rather than a home. I don't know if you'd refer to it that way, but well, so that I don't say it wrong, if it's even what I'm thinking about, what's the name of that place? It is Joranneborg. Perhaps you know it is named for Joranneborg who is a goddess of astronomy. It is not so exactly goddess. It's a term like an angel or something that inspires you to do something. The English uh. call it a muse or something, yes? Okay. Urani so Urania was the muse of astronomy. So my home, which was a quite grand manor house, was dedicated to Urania. So it was oh. Uraniborg, which is castle of Urania. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so let me see if I got this right. So here you are. Everybody knows about this fantastic work that you're doing. You basically have two kings throughout your life, more or less, and that is Frederick II, who you got along with really well. And mm -hmm. then when he passes along, then Christopher the Fourth. Christian the Fourth, yeah. Christian the Fourth. Christian the Fourth. He comes in later. These are basically the two people kings in your life. But Frederick was a lot better because Frederick liked what you were doing and said, you know what, we've got an extra island here. We're going to give you this island. We're going to throw a bunch of money at you. And then you went and built this palatial mansion on it on a private island and get a pet moose. And then <laughs> I heard that you had a, a clairvoyant jester or something. 
Maybe you could speak on yeah. that. And then you're just living on this private island with tons of money and alcohol. There've got to be people coming by here to visit all the time. Oh, it was the jewel of, of Denmark. I, in my eyes, that it was it designed to be something that would attract people uh, of high intellect and appreciation for what our mission was there. And yes, one of my friends, was his name was Jeb. He was a clairvoyant dwarf whom I was a company I was very fond of. He made me laugh on many occasions and would sometimes cast horoscopes for the guests himself. So it, it was befitting of the high times that we experienced here. And yes, there were men of science and social importance came to, came to visit us on Zine on, on many occasions. There were times, in fact, and I was wishing that, that there were not so many guests because they would be infer- interfering with the clear nights of observations. But there was always enough people there with my students could entertain someone if I was busy up on the roof making an observation of Saturn or the like. But even some people of high notoriety, uh, King James is the sixth of Scotland, who would eventually become James I of England. The king was a visitor to me on Wien. You may know that he married in an arrangement between Denmark and England. He married Queen Anne of England, was of, of Danish birth. So that's why he was in, in Denmark. And he came to ascertain what we were doing and see what we were all about. He, he was a man of, of high education, James, but unfortunately he turned some of his erudition to more farcical studies. He was very concerned with finding witches and the like, using scientific enterprises, which was something that I could not, could not support. But it was impressive for Denmark, nonetheless, to have the British monarch come to, to visit us in, in Denmark. So it was, it was a place that you would naturally want to go, and the doors were open for all of those with, with a mind open to, to study the skies or to just advance the notions of science and our understanding of uh, Urania's realm. Did Kristen live on the island with you? Pardon me? Did Kristen, your common-law wife, oh, yes, did yes, she, of course, she live on the island? Uh, Kristen was always by my side from uh, the day I met her. She's uh, a romance that perhaps someday they'll make a constellation, Chico and, and Kirsten in the skies, because <laughs> it's the woman I love dearly, and she was uh, very faithful by my side uh, all of the time. And it was she supported me in my work, and she was there with me as well and helping to entertain the guests. So, yes, we were inseparable. I have to think that some of these kings, when they would come and visit you in royalty, they would come see your private island with your fantastic mansion and this lifestyle of living away from everybody else. They had to leave and start talking to the people that handled their countries and saying, where's my private island? You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of those guys ended up with private islands too. There was a little bit of a jealousy. I remember there was a prince who came from the south near Germany, and he came and made a very great remonstrations about how much he loved a particular fountain that I had constructed inside of the home, and it had a statue of Mercury, a messenger of the gods, and he thought it was so particularly beautiful and insisted that he would have to have this and that I should give this to him. And being something I have to, with the politics of the time as well, I'm very fond of this, but I will give it away because he has promised to replace it. He absconded with, well, didn't abscond, but I granted <laughs> him my, my statue of Mercury and he took it back with him to, to his castle and I never heard from him again. 
So it was, perhaps there was an element of jealousy in some of this, but yes, I, perhaps I was a little too generous. <laughs> what, a, what a nice guy. Just comes and sees a nice statue and goes, you know, I could use this. Yeah, well, one does not have to look very far in the world of, of royalty to find people who are of, how shall we say, of suspect character, which is part of the reason why I was so happy on Rin, because I was away from most of all of this, this free-for-all of, of people are arguing and sniping and the things that happen inside of a royal court. I was safely ensconced on my little throne, just like Queen Cassiopeia in, in, in Rin. And it was a place that brought me peace, even though we had some raucous celebrations at the time. I was far away from the backstabbing and the politics that revolved around royal life. So, yeah, yeah there's certainly that aspect. Let's talk about Kepler for a minute. So, Johannes mm -hmm. Kepler, in our time, is known as a man who took your work and really ran with it and did some good things. He's got a great reputation. But there's no question that that greatness started with you, at least it appears that way. But you and him don't get along that well, is that right? But it is, I would like to say that I get along well more with Kepler than Kepler gets along with me. I am a man who recognizes a genius, and Kepler certainly is a mathematician of unparalleled in all of Europe. And he uh, apparently, from stories I hear from speaking with him and his wife and the like, ever since he was a young boy, his, the power of his intellect, sometimes, uh, how should we say, like, like weeds crowd out a uh, garden, uh, sometimes crowded out the more finer points of society. So Kepler would do things when he was a boy, like uh, make a re report for his, his studies for the teacher about all of the shortcomings of all of his classmates. And this sorts of things, which is bound to make one not particularly popular. Um, <laughs> so this, this trait of his, as a sort of dedication to his intellect, other things would suffer. And he, on many occasions, uh, stepped on the toes of local magistrates and the like. So perhaps it was uh, this tiger had kept its stripes the same by the time he had come to work with me in Prague. And... Or again, although we had some, as I say, successful collaborations in terms of the, what we had discovered from the data and the like, Kepler was always eager to say, Tico, Tico, give me everything now. And uh, this is my life's work. I am not about to give it away to a potential competitor without some sense of control. And I remember that I assigned w one of the issues with my Taikonic system was the orbit of Mars was particularly troubling. It was Mars, for some reason, would never exactly be where it's supposed to be. And I assigned this problem to Kepler to try to see if he could solve this. And Kepler thought that this was a um, little cartofla, uh, you know, you say in uh, English, small potatoes for him. So he uh, thought this was, uh, well, I cannot be bothered by these little things. I want all of your data so that I can understand the grand views of the universe. He had some theory that there were five shapes in geometry that are solids. Imagine a cube and all the sides are squares, yes? There are only five shapes like that in all of geometry that have all of the same sides. And Kepler had done some such strange calculation when he was a, a math teacher in Germany that he found a relationship of these shapes somehow corresponded in his mind, at least, to the orbits of the planets according to Copernicus. And we know that Kepler was a supporter of Copernicus. 
So Kepler had some strange thought that he was reading the mind of God in the semblance of this geometry. And he had always wanted to pay attention to this, to this theory he had. And my data, he thought, was essential to this. So he was always very impatient to have it all. So that was the, the reason why we often were at odds with each other, that he wanted this or wanted that. And we would argue for a week or so, and then it would calm down again. And I felt that sometimes I mentioned that I was essentially trying to keep the volcano from erupting, which we did <laughs> successfully enough to achieve some agreement, a peace between us. And as you have alluded, that Kepler will, at some particular point in time, use my data to make some great discoveries, which is something that brings a warmth to my heart, knowing that the arguments will bear some fruits. Are you comfortable around people like this, that brilliant people that are quirky? Well, it is, if you are in the service, again, Urania is a muse, and perhaps she affects people in different ways, and perhaps Urania's effect on Kepler was of a, a more, how should we say, strident or excitable level than it was for others. So this action is to be excused. i much rather have an argument with a gentleman over the nature of the universe or astronomy than have an argument with them over uh, which king or this king is offending this king or what other aspects of social society. So it was something that I think caused Kepler more consternation than it caused to me. But in the end, as you have alluded, that there seems to be a, a good ending to this. Yeah, most definitely. Did you write a book cataloging a thousand stars? Yes, that, that was one of my other great achievements. Eventually, this book would be financed by... Once eventually, and perhaps this story will come out in one of your questions, that I will relocate to serve Emperor Rudolf II from the Holy Roman Empire in Bohemia. And it is under his auspices and financial support that this, this grand catalog would eventually be published with essentially the more updated versions of the, the star's locations that would revolutionize astronomy, yes. Do you have a favorite star? Well, it is the star that's disappeared. <laughs> the Nova Stella still exists in my memory, so it, it must be my favorite. But being a, someone of the Nordic countries, the North Star is the one that is always near to us because the higher the North Star is in the sky, the closer I know I am to my home in Denmark. That's a great answer. That really is, and that makes <laughs> sense. That would be your favorite star, too. So the stars in the sky, are they hot? Or are they cold? Are they hard? Are they soft? What well, do you think? This is something to, for future generations to probably ascertain. We can tell that, that there are differences amongst the planets. They seem to gl glow with the light of cast by the sun. The sun seems to be special in that it is, we can feel its warmth. We cannot feel the warmth from the stars, but perhaps they are something similar to them. I remember when I was in Italy, there was a, a famous a monk cleric named Giordano Bruno, who had proposed that every star in the sky might be like a sun nearby us and be a family of planets around each of those nearby. And a lovely romantic thought that makes the mind whirl with possibilities to think of like, oh, there are other worlds with these stars. But unfortunately, that idea was a little bit ahead of its time, and Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for such beliefs. So perhaps you can see in the back of my mind when I was making my compromise system that it might be better to not offend everybody with your scientific prognostications. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I probably should ask you this at the beginning. Do you prefer to be called Tico or Mr. Brahe? Oh, yeah, we are friends. You want to call me Tico? If you ever have the opportunity to, to visit Denmark and, and learn the, the tongue there, in Danish, my name is pronounced Tige Bra. And, uh, but some people have said that Danish is speaking it is uh, it's like trying to talk with food in your mouth. So it is understandable if, if the pronunciation of Tico is easier for your tongue, then you should, you should use that. And, I, and as, as the friends that we are now, and we are considering all of these topics, I believe that if we were together, I would toast and say skål to you as I stared on your eyes with my glass of beer, because we certainly have interests drawing us together. So henceforth, you are to call me Tico. Thank you, Tico. And I think you're right. I think we would definitely be raising a glass or two or five. So I, I'm going to ask you one last question, and I really appreciate all this time today because I have just had the most interesting time talking to you. And, of course, after I ask this question, if there's something that I've forgotten that you'd like to ask, I'd love to hear it. But I guess my question is, how do you envision the future of astronomy, the potential for future discoveries? What do you see the future looking like? Well, I think that it is, a, imagine, a, a large boulder, and maybe it has been sitting for eons. And the winds and the rain eventually does do not uh, move it. It is steadfast sitting on a cliff. But as the rains come, this is like the new way of, of intellectual thinking with mathematics and science. It is slowly like the rain eroding the support underneath and the boulder is just starting to roll. And we know that as it goes down the hill, it will gain further and further speed. So I think we are at the point in our history of studying the sciences and philosophy and the like that the border has just begun to start to move on its own. And I think this bodes well for I, I can see that there will be people in the not so distant future, not as distant as I was from Hipparchus and Ptolemy, who will be taking the work that we are establishing in this time and year and seeing that the border continues to roll forward with greater and greater celerity to future discoveries that will be all the more exciting, that will make my discoveries of the Nova Stella and the like seem little in comparison. Well, I will tell you, and you'll be glad to hear this, I'm sure, that the uh, the push that you have given on that boulder was not a general push. That thing is rolling. It is rolling hard, and it is rolling fast. And I will not soon forget this conversation because I have enjoyed it very much, and I thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we, we wrap this up? I, it is something we are talking about. We have talked about uh, nations and kings and like and how... Sometimes these things seem very trivial in comparison to the study of the universe. There is a time I was asked after the, I was forced eventually to leave Wien by Christian IV. It was just too much of a, an issue to try to always placate the king. So I basically said, well, I will I take my genius and I will work for another prince who is more open to such things. And this is how I became the, under the employment of Emperor Rudolf II in Prague. And eventually I would relocate there. And I've just made that move recently. And I now have a castle north of Prague called Banatsky Castle, where I am trying to recreate some of the observational facilities that I had on Wien. But someone asked me that, do you miss your homeland of Denmark? And, and as every Dane knows, we are very fond of the country of our birthplace. And it did hurt my heart a bit to emigrate to a place where my work would be more understood. And the notion was that, well, Tigua, you are a Bohemian now. And it's, I had to consider myself that 
even though I had left Denmark and now I was living in Prague, that I could best be described as the fact that I am now a citizen of the cosmos, where there are no boundaries, this cosmopolitan air that perhaps will invest itself in science, that there will be a day, and this is my hope for the future, that my work, I will not have lived in vain, that this spirit that philosophers and scientists, no matter what country they were born or under what king they serve, they, science will erase the boundaries between them. And we will become citizens of the cosmos, as I would think that the mules Urania would have it be. And I think that is the greatest hope for the future. Perhaps there would be a, a brotherhood between men of science, and this will further advance the progress we have as members of, of the human species. Beautifully said. Thank you again so much for your time, and I'm going to wish you the best. In Danish, you say, Tusen tak which means a thousand thank yous. The next time we are together, we will have a nice glass of lager together and reflect back on our meeting here. You can count on it. Thank you again. You're very welcome. Tycho Brahe's life was filled with wonderment as he lived well, surrounded by the most fascinating people of his time. Even when he lost Uraniborg and was forced to leave his homeland when Christian IV took power, Tycho ended up being taken in by Rudolf II, named the court astronomer, and was allowed to build a castle 50 miles from Prague. But despite the curiosities of his extraordinary life, he is said to have written his own epitaph. He lived like a sage and died like a fool. Now, I'm not sure if fool is the right word, but the way he left this world was about as glamorous as Rick's the drunken moose falling down the stairs to his death. While attending a dinner party, Tico had too much to drink, as usual. Thinking it would be rude to get up and relieve himself, he suffered in silence and his bladder burst. Tico suffered for days in excruciating pain, not being able to urinate, and then eventually died. While dying, he pleaded with Kepler to finish his work. After his death, his beautiful palace of Wien, Uraniborg, was destroyed by Christian IV. But despite exiting this world so unceremoniously, his work has lived until this day. I'm glad you're enjoying this podcast with me. If you haven't yet, please subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.